Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today, we're talking with Ali Hamed. Ali became a venture capitalist right out of undergrad. In fact, he started his own fund. I know that is impressive. And don't worry, I will make Ali go step by step to tell us all how he did that. I ask Ali pretty much everything you'd want me to ask him, so don't worry. Please stay with us. Before we get into the interview today, I'm going to try something new. I want to add a segment to the podcast where I discuss something fun and interesting. Maybe with a guest host, maybe not. We'll see how it goes. Maybe I'll do this before the interviews. I might do it after. Just trying to test all this out. So for the first time doing this, I want to discuss one of the trending topics on the, uh, on the forum this week. So in a post from user Monkey Bra, hey Monkey Bra, he questions finding work-life balance and getting burned out while working banking and, uh, and private equity hours. So this guy, he did a couple hours in banking, and now he's done a year in private equity. Uh, but in between the two jobs, he, he traveled and got a glimpse of what he thinks is a life he's missing out on. What's running through his head now is, is what to do next. He works in private equity, so he's, he's clearly smart. He knows about compounding returns and, and how saving while you're young can really have a big effect come, uh, come retirement age. He also realizes that the life is short, but more on that in a second. And as he puts it, I'm losing time each day and I'm only getting older. Okay, so here's my thoughts. Dude, everyone wants what they don't have. As I meet up with friends from B-School, guys I used to work in banking with or, or other startup friends, each conversation I have has the same outcome. I'm jealous of their job or what they're doing, and they're jealous of what I'm doing. A grass is always greener kind of thing, except it's not. The grass is brown everywhere. When I hang out with friends who work on the buy side and, and they're making big money, I think to myself, man, uh, I should have stayed on this path. Look how much money he's making, how smart the people he's working with are, how he's traveling to London next week. Or even if I'm talking with someone at a startup that's later stage than mine, I think, shit, I should have gone to a company that's a little further along. They actually have some capital and can solve a huge problem. On the flip side, do you know what these guys say to me? Dude, I wish I was doing what you're doing. Or Alex, you really did the right thing after B-School of starting your own company, getting equity, 
man, you're on the path. Everyone wants what they don't have. That's life. That's how our brains are wired. I was talking with a venture capitalist this week, and he told me something wise. He said, we're all going to live till we're 100. Our careers are going to be 60 years long. To be upset or discouraged over a couple-year period, that's nuts. As long as you're getting better each day, smarter, healthier, more connections, then you're setting yourself up for success. That's the power of compounding returns in a career. User M8's recommendation here stresses balance. He says, get a good job and max out your vacation allotment every year with trips. That's working for him and uh, in his private equity career. Then APAE, sorry, I'm definitely not saying that name correctly, jumps in with a great argument saying, the point is you need to know what lens you're going to look through. What's the right path for you at this moment? For me, that was banking right after undergrad and then some uncertainty in my journey, which, which led me to B-school, and then the realization that I'm an entrepreneur in my heart. Uh, I don't have the idea yet, so I joined a super early startup, which is absolutely not the right path for many people, but, but I'm a huge risk taker. APAE says, my point here is that there are all kinds of unorthodox ways to build the life you want. Figure out what that looks like, then spend as long as you have working to make it real. Lastly, Wonton, great name, comes in towards the end of the post, and one line he said struck me. As I research entrepreneurship. That's not how it works, dude. In B-school, I had friends that would say, oh, uh, I'm not recruiting, I'm going to start a business. Businesses are started by identifying problems that you have a deep interest in solving, something that matters to you. If that problem hasn't identified itself to you yet, don't become an entrepreneur for the sake of becoming an entrepreneur. You can join someone else's startup and solve their problem, which is what I'm doing now, or you can continue on your path until the problem that needs to be solved by you is illuminated, which it will be if your eyes are open and, and you work hard. So back to monkey bra, dude, you're smart. The universe has a way of working itself out. You're never going to be homeless. You will figure out a way to be successful no matter what you're doing. If you're not happy with what you're doing now, bounce, go chase your dreams. And that's it for this first segment. Let me know what you think. The lines are open. I'm on Twitter at agrodnick. My email is alex at Wall Street Oasis. Get in touch with me. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to try. If you leave the podcast a review on iTunes this week, I'll select someone to get a free resume review or mentor session with one of the WSO pros. So yeah, please leave a review. Okay, that's it for me. Let's get into the interview today. Ollie, we've had some technical difficulties. This is our third attempt. Let's hope this one goes good. Good. I'm, I'm in venture capital. I'm used to like, uh, trying things over and over again. Uh, yeah, so this is a good ratio for you. One out of three, right? That would be incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's good in venture capital and baseball. <laughs> yeah, okay. So VC is one of the things you do. You do a couple others. Uh, tell us everything. Yeah, so... Um, you know, CoVenture uh, started off as a venture capital fund, fund um, and we ended up getting into two other businesses thereafter. We are in direct lending and we're also in crypto. And at CoVenture, we're most interested in finding sort of new asset classes that are being invented on the back of technology. Um, so things where we can find really interesting uh, investment opportunities, not because we're just a little bit better at pricing things, but rather because we're buying assets or making investments um, in things that had never really existed before. 
Um, so we're either investing in a new financial product or we are uh, taking a new sort of twist on a traditional asset class. And that's how we sort of build our investment theses. Got it. So a common VC strategy is to look for contrarian type investments, but that's kind of different from what you're doing. You're talking about looking for investments that just aren't even on the radar of the venture capital world. Um, In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. So so we're still looking for sort of contrarian views. Um, You know, a founder has this unique insight about either how the world should be or how it's going to be um, and wants to build a business in that space. Now, What's most unique about us is what we offer them. So, you know, in many cases, we'll give them capital and we'll give, you know, give them funding so that they can start their business. In some cases, we'll help them build their technology with them. So we have a team of engineers. So if a founder comes to us and it turns out that he or she is not an engineer themselves um, or either doesn't have the capacity to do all the coding or, or something else, we'll actually use our engineering team to help them build the application. Um, and then in other cases, we'll also provide them other types of capital. Um, so, you know, there's a business in L.A., for example, since since that's where you are, um, that what they do is they provide cash flow to farmers uh, in Latin America. Um, and so with them, we gave them capital. We helped them build their technology and we also provide them debt financing. Um, and I think it was announced we ended up leading um, about a seventy seven million dollar financing. Um, uh, a significant amount of that was debt capital. Um, so we view it as a competitive advantage for our firm that we can do a lot of these things and sort of invest up and down the capital stack of a business um, and provide sort of a full suite of solutions to those companies. Uh, We think it helps us attract better talent, attract better companies, and then also support those companies in a way where we can contribute to a more certain outcome. That's great because, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably more on the business side and less on the development engineering side. So say one of them has a cool idea. He's working at a at Hilton right now, and he's got an idea for how to change the hotel industry. It's different from Airbnb. Um, but he doesn't have a co-founder to build this new app for him. So he could come to you guys and and say what? Yeah, so in that case, we'd be interested in if the entrepreneur was uh, working in the hospitality industry and wanted to build a company in that same industry. So you might be you know, a phenomenal uh uh, executive in publishing, but if you want to do something in hospitality, we really want to understand sort of the uh, wh- why that made sense. So in your example, you're right. We'd find someone who, let's say, works at Hilton um, and was trying to build a technology that they could then sell to all of the people that they already interact with. Um, that person might have the advantage of knowing all the customers, knowing the seemingly unpragmatic nuances of why hospitality works the way it does. And so they'd come to us and he or she would pitch us some sort of idea, uh, and we'd say, great, how much capital do you need to prove that customers could really use this and value it? And if there's technology, and you can't build the technology yourself, again, either because you're not a developer um, or because you're a developer, but you just don't have the time to both run the business and write the code, um, we'll deploy a few of our engineers, and we'll help you build your application. That's great. Uh, that's really cool. So, you know, venture capitalists have all these questions they like to ask founders. The why you is a really important one. That sounds like that's a crucial one for you. So, absolutely. Um, and I think that's crucial for every investor. I think we all have our sort of unique, you know, what we think are unique insights or, or takes on it. Um, you know, some of the things that we look for, as I mentioned, are sort of what makes them uniquely dispositioned to start a business in an industry that they're uh, specifically going after. But there's also a lot of other patterns that we've recognized about sort of the best entrepreneurs. Um, one of the things that I talk a lot about is I'm kind of convinced that people have started raising capital their freshman year in high school, even. Um, because, 
you know, the people that end up having the easiest time raising capital to then go start a business are the type of people who um, are just, people just naturally gravitate towards. So, Alex, you can probably think about uh, the when when you were in school, maybe the smartest person you had ever met. Um, for me, the smartest person in my high school is this woman named Christina Sue. Um, and it's probably totally weird that I'm like, you know, 26 and still talking about her. Um, but I used to like literally ask her to use her pencil to take tests. And I called it the elder pencil, pencil, like the elder wand. Um, like I was just totally enamored by how smart she was. And I had this impression of her. And, and if today she were to start a business, I'd probably invest in whatever she was doing because she was that person in her friend group who everyone always like sort of admired, um, for her intellectual horsepower and sort of her competence. Um, the people who raise capital most easily are the ones that people have already implicitly decided or subconsciously decided that they would fund if they ever do something so that by the time they show up to raise capital, everyone's already prepared. Um, and, and I often ask people, you know, if you were to think about sort of that cliche saying of the average of the five people you spend your, the most time with, but if you think about your friend group, you know, it, are, are you the smartest or most competent person in your friend group? And if so, um, you know, you might actually have a really good chance of getting funded by those people. You have an even better chance of getting funded by those people uh, if they are also incredibly competent and have the capacity to be investors. Uh, so, so the types of people that we end up backing, of course, have that domain expertise, but are also that just one person that everyone around them knows is going to be successful. And even luckier than that is all the other people around them are also successful, such that when they go to start a company and they have the fewest amount of data points about the success of that business to date, the, peop- the thing that people are underwriting is how they've lived their life to that point. Um, and if they've lived a life of excellence, of competency, of intellectual rigor, um, then they will be able to raise capital and idea because people have so much conviction around them. And them, they are really the only uh, you know equity uh, value of the business at that point. Yeah. So, Ali, before we started this and as we were talking here, you're got your own venture capital fund. I would have thought, most people would have probably thought you were somewhere in your mid-30s, maybe closer to 40, but you just said you're 26. That's crazy, right? So I I think in um, technology, people probably index uh, a little younger than traditional asset classes. Um, I think part of that is that there's just so much turnover in terms of uh, information and knowledge and and sort of how the asset class behaves, that if you've been doing it for, you know, Investing is different than entrepreneurship. It's definitely better to have done it longer because you have certain pattern recognition that you can identify. But there's probably some advantage of, of being in venture capital as a younger individual. One, because uh, people of a younger demographic are often often the ones starting those businesses. And secondly, there's less legacy information that's relevant. Um, the information and the relevant sort of data sets that you use to make investments uh, churns on a more regular interval. Yeah, so... How'd you get this? How'd you get into venture capital? It's a very hard field to get into. You have your own uh, company. How'd you, how'd you do all this? So, so I'll give um, my own sort of way of getting into it, uh, and then I can kind of opine on, on ways that I think other people should pursue it. Yeah, that'd be um, great. You know, for, for me, it was very accidental. Uh, I, I did a startup, um, and we raised a little bit of capital, um, and we hired people, and we built something that I thought was pretty interesting, but it was never financially successful. And after that, I started doing consulting, um, and really what the consulting was is I'd go around telling people I was a consultant, um, I'd go to conferences, et cetera, and they'd say, hey, I need help with this. And I'd say, you know what, I'm the biggest expert in the world at that. Um, I'll do it for you. And then I'd hire somebody who actually was an expert and I'd sort of subcontract out the work, manage the project, and to try to earn a little bit of that extra, um, you know, sort of the VIG. And I, I saved up just enough money with, um, with one of my other partners where we wanted to start angel investing. 
And I thought, that I, honestly, the reason I wanted to start angel investing is because having been an entrepreneur, you'd go out and you'd pitch your startup to all these venture capitalists and all the VCs would sort of sit there in these really comfortable chairs in these conference rooms that look pretty fancy um, and opine on your business. And I always thought, wow, it must be really good to be on the other side. Um, and, and so I just wanted to angel invest and sort of learn from entrepreneurs. I kind of viewed it as a way to network, um, as a way to sort of think about how I could start my own next business. Um, and then I just really started to love it. And instead of just making small angel investments where we'd write like a twenty, twenty-five thousand dollar check into a company, um, people would come to us and they'd say, "Look, I'll give you a tiny, tiny amount of the company for twenty-five thousand uh, dollars, but if you code the application for me, if you help me build the technology, I'll give you way more of the company." And we had this insight that for coding for equity, we could actually get more of the company. It would cost us less, and we could focus on finding founders who we thought were higher quality than if we were uh, subject to only investing in a pool. Of the two and a half people, two and a half percent of the people in the country who are actually software engineers, um, you know there were a bunch of disadvantages of only investing in software engineers. One, there's not that many of them. Two, everyone else is targeting them. And three, it's a really homogenous group of people. Um, you know, the software engineers are traditionally of like two or three demographics, and and it's like this really myopic way of looking at the world. Um, and so we felt like we could invest in more diverse founders, more qualified founders. We could do so at a lower cost basis, and it just became a better model. So that was my personal way of getting into investing, you know, and, and people often say, hey, like, how do I get a job in venture capital? Um, you know, you're right. It's hard because there's so few positions. And so what I've told people is basically what you should do is act like a venture capitalist, except without the ability to write checks. And then eventually, if you do that enough, someone will eventually ask you to join their firm. And so what do I mean by that? Um, in venture capital, there's four core functions. There's going to find the deals. There's doing diligence on the deals. There's supporting the portfolio companies. And there's raising capital that you use to then invest in companies. Um, most young people have the ability to tackle three of those four things. The first is finding deals. Um, much of venture capital is about being a popular enough person where you know a lot of individuals who are likely to start companies or are likely to know people who are going to start companies um, such that you can drive deal flow. And so as an individual, what you want to do is meet a lot of people who are going to start companies. Um, you can have a Twitter account, a Medium account, an online presence of some semblance that proves to people that you have that. And then also meet some venture capitalists so that when you see interesting companies, you can say, hey, venture capitalists in my network, I know somebody starting a company. Would you like an introduction to them? You're proving to people that you already have deal flow even before you're a venture capitalist. The second is the ability to do diligence. And you can learn that in school. You can search it online. You can read blogs of how VCs think about companies. And even better is if you met with a company or somebody starting a company, you wrote an email to that VC and said, by the way, I've done some thinking about if this is a good idea, idea or not. Here's my summary and my analysis. Would you like an intro? So now you went from being somebody who had good deal flow to somebody who had good deal flow and was able to analyze the deal. The third thing you can do is support those companies. So as you're going on um, in your life and meeting all these people and trying to build a network that would then drive deal flow, you also know people who should know each other. And a lot of what venture capitalists do is help their portfolio companies get access to hard-to-reach people or people who are relevant to their specific company. If you start doing that with your friends who already have companies, even without them asking, you've now been doing three of the four things that venture capitalists do such that when a venture capitalist raises a new fund and realizes they need to hire somebody, instead of them going out and posting a job, they just think, wow, I've known that person who's already been doing a lot of the stuff that I'm going to hire someone for anyway. I might as well just ask them to join my firm. 
And that's really how a lot of people get jobs in venture capital. Um, it's, it's a much longer process. It takes patience. It takes luck. Um, but it's really about putting yourself in qual- a position of qualified serendipity. Yeah. And I think that's a great four-step process. It's kind of similar to everything in life. You have to find ways to prove value and prove, val- prove your value to others. No one's just going to give you uh, a check for your business or hire you to, your, to their firm like without you going above and beyond, just like what you're talking about. You know, I think in rare cases, they will. And, and you'll end up finding that people view that as a false positive. They'll say to themselves, wow, I know this person. Um, they got a check. They probably didn't deserve it. And so, wow, venture capitalists must be a lot more about luck and just knowing somebody and having a good network. It's not those other things. I think from time to time that does happen. It's ridiculous when it does happen. But it's important to not really sort of view that false positive as a uh, leading indicator for how all other deals get done. Right. So something you kind of mentioned or alluded to earlier is it's, you know, it's tough to raise the first amount of capital for a business. It's tough when you're a first time entrepreneur. I assume it's equally tough when you're a first time VC. How did you get people to trust you to, you know, invest in you so that you could invest in businesses? So it's very similar. So, so I actually joke, um, raising capital for a fund is in many ways more depressing than, uh, than raising capital for a company. I I stole this joke from another guy named Will Pang who, who ended up uh, having a firm called Red Sea Ventures uh, a while ago, and and what he um, what he said is, you know, when you go to pitch a com- pitch a company, and somebody says no to the investment, at least they can say, well, I don't think the company is a good idea. When you're raising a fund and somebody doesn't invest, they're really like, you know what? I just don't like you, right? I don't think you can invest my capital. It's a much more personal no, uh, which which I've always thought is sort of funny. Um, but you know, when you when you go out and raise your very first amount of capital, it's similar to when you have a comp- when you have a startup. People are investing in all the things that you've done in the past. And so the people, we, the first capital we raised was like four hundred thousand dollars, and it came in five thousand, ten thousand, twenty five thousand dollars checks. It came from anybody in the world who was willing to work with us. And what I told them is, I said, "Look, it's going to take me a year and a half anyway to raise the money uh, to invest the money. How about I just cap- call your capital over um, eighteen months?" So that every four months, you only have to contribute you know, some portion of the capital. So that even if you're investing $10,000, each capital calls like $2,500. So it just made it incredibly affordable and just begged people. And I asked a million people, and some people felt guilty enough to say yes and give me that initial capital. Um, and then once we had gotten that capital, we started making investments. And some of those investments had early indications that they were going to be successful companies. So I had about 12 portfolio companies, and those portfolio companies were reasonably uh, well thought out um, and were making progress. So that was one thing that helped. The second thing is I approached two individuals who I thought were really impressive and had been impressionable in my life and asked them to work with us part-time. One was a guy named Thatcher Bell, and Thatcher is a Cornell alum. He's the type of guy who would come back to campus, and we'd all like sort of line up with our portfolios and try to shake his hand and get a business card. Um, and he was the type of person that we all said, you know what, one day when I grow up, I want to be like him. Um, and the other is a guy named Mike Beller. And Mike had co-founded a firm called Diamond Technology Partners. It IPO'd. It was sold to PwC. Uh, PwC. Um, and he had this phenomenal track record as both an operator and an investor. And so I convinced them to each work with us a day a week. Um, now, Thatcher probably would have never joined me. And Mike would have never joined me. But Mike and Thatcher wanted to work together. Um, because they both were impressive in their own right. And I just happened to be the third partner in the middle. So I got really lucky. And ultimately, over time, as we continued to work together for about six to 12 months, 
They both joined full-time. And once they did that, we had a portfolio of about 12 reasonable companies and then two partners who had great resumes and one person, me, who was just willing to go out and like beg people for their capital and convince them that if they gave me a little bit of money, I'd give them more back later. And here's all the ways I was going to do it. Um, you know, one of the other things that I used to do is when you're going out to raise capital, building the top of the funnel is hard. Um, so I, I would go to someone's LinkedIn who I knew I had made a good impression on, and I'd look at every single person they knew, and I'd pick 10 names of people that I wanted to meet. And I'd send those 10 names to them, and I'd say, here's 10 people that you know that I'd like to meet. If you could introduce me to two of them, that would be really great. And if so, I will send you an email that you can easily forward to them as to why I want to meet them and why I'm requesting the meeting. What I found is if you just ask somebody, hey, do you know any potential investors that I can meet? Um, you're doing two things. The first is you're putting a massive cognitive load on them. You're asking them to think through their network, which is a hard thing to do, and figure out who would be appropriate, and then draft an email um, sort of uh, convincing their friend that they should take a meeting as a favor to you. Um, so that, that was one part. The second is people tend to make intros to the most convenient person, not to the best person. Um, and so by dictating the 10 people that I was wanting to meet, um, I was at least qualifying potential introductions. So, you know, those were the various ways uh, that we were able to build the top of the funnel. And then finally, I just sort of backfilled the round. Um, so I said, look, you know, we were still raising a small amount of capital. We were raising $3 million. And I went to the most impressive person I knew. And I said, uh, you know, if we raise $2.975 million, will you give us the last $25,000? And he said, yes. Um, and so then I was like, great, you're in. And so I could use his, his uh, commitment because even though he was sort of last check in, in some ways he was the first name in, um, I could use the positive signal that he was committed to then go raise the rest of the capital. Um, and so that, those were some of the techniques we used to raise the $3 million. Thereafter, uh, we continued to raise more capital. And, and the next thing that we raised was a half a million dollar check um, to invest in the debt of one of our portfolio companies. We did it as an SPV, which is called a special purpose vehicle, which is really an entity that has the purpose of only making one investment. And they are easier to raise than a fund is because you're, in, you're raising capital for a specific thing. So instead of um, our investors underwriting our ability to make investments, they were able to look through at what the actual asset was and underwrite that asset. We could then use that to continue pooling capital into that vehicle, where it went from being half a million dollars to $6 million to $60 million. And it ended up introducing us to many other people who first met us through this SPV that we set up, but then got to know us as investors and then started committing to more discretionary pools that we now invest out of. I know that was sort of a long answer, but I, hopefully that kind of gives you more of a granular sense. Yeah, it was long, but I absolutely love that creative kind of sidestepping hustle that you implemented to you know raise a fund, to get investments, to get people together. Every single thing that you did was super creative and kind of outside the box. And really, that's what it takes when you're young, when you're old, any point in your career, if you want to make something happen, you got to be thinking like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, uh, history is told in a linear way. And like, I guess the terms revisionist history, if you, if you, if you really think about how a lot of these companies or firms got started, many of them really started with $5 million funds, $10 million funds, even the funds that we admire today um, in a really significant way, like raising that initial capital is hard. Um, there's some cases where a manager gets approached by capital and they say, hey, if I gave you $100 million, how would you invest it? And that's really good, but it's rare. Um, in most cases, firms get started in sort of this scrappy, uh, sort of quickly put together way, and, and we're no different. 
Yeah. And so when you're investing in companies, are you looking for the same kind of scrappy mentality in the founders? Um, sort of. I mean, of course, right? So you're looking for people who can be resourceful. You'll often find seed investors who say, I don't want to invest in a company that's pre-product because one of my uh, check boxes is their, resourceful not, their resourcefulness. The idea being that if you can't convince somebody um, to build a product for you, for your company, then you can't convince people of other things. Or if you can't learn to code yourself, um, then you either aren't, don't have the intellectual horsepower to start a business or you don't have the drive to start a business. Um, you know, I, I've said this before. We're happy to invest in people who are not developers, um, and we view ourselves as an easier on-ramp to starting a company. But when I meet somebody who says, I can't code, and that's why I haven't started my company, I don't really have a lot of sympathy for them. Coding just really isn't that hard. Um, and being a software developer in many cases is very different than being a computer scientist. So if someone sits there and says, I don't have time to code, um, but then they're like spending their weekends at brunch with their friends and like going out, um, it's just like they just should never be a founder of a company. Um, and so uh, I, I do think that that resourcefulness and scrappiness really matters. Um, but the other stuff is velocity, right? Like there's no better indicator that someone's going to be successful if while you're th- other than while you're underwriting them, their ability to continue making progress throughout the conversation. So if you meet somebody and on day null, they explain their business to you. By day seven, they find a new customer. By day 14, they make a new hire. By day 21, they have another customer who's about to come online and you can call them as a reference check. Like that's a business that's making positive progress throughout the underwriting process. And how they behave during that process is probably similar to how they'll behave after that process. Um, so it's a combination of scrappiness, momentum, um, resourcefulness, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So we've spent a lot of this discussion focusing on the venture investing piece. You have other, and we touched on the lending, but there's a crypto uh, thing we haven't, we, we haven't even touched on. So tell us about what those things are and then, you know, why most VCs do one thing. Why do you do so many? Sure. So for lending, we got into that business because we had been equity investors in a number of alternative lending platforms. Um, and we realized that after we made the equity investment, they'd come to us and say, hey, do you mind helping me find debt financing so that I can fund the loans that I'm originating? Um, a company that is making loans online usually doesn't want to use their equity capital to do so. Um, the reason is you have to sell a percentage of your company. So let's imagine you know, your company's worth $20 million, which would be great. You sell 25% of the company, so you have $5 million of cash. That's not a lot of money that you can use to go make loans. And often these loans are too long-term, so you can't recycle that capital quickly. So what you'll do is you'll raise debt capital, and someone will provide the debt capital that you can then use to fund the loans that you're making. Um, We kind of viewed that the first iteration of online lending platforms were going to be the lending clubs or the Ondex or the SoFis of the world, which were basically taking what banks used to do offline and putting them online. But that wasn't what we were so interested in. Instead, what we were interested in was finding technology companies that were using their tech to observe a previously unobservable data point such that we could invent a new type of credit where we could get a really high yield, not because we were just going higher, higher, higher and higher up the risk curve, but rather because we were just doing something that no one knew how to underwrite before. So we were getting unlevered mid to high teens types returns uh, or targeting that at least um, in asset-backed loans that were at a low LTV, that were cross-collateralized, et cetera. Um, And we kept finding this sort of explosion of new products that we could then underwrite. Um, And so we built this lending business to fund those types of loans. And at that time, we had a venture fund and a lending business. And we said, what are we? 
Um, and that's when we really came with a thesis that we really liked. The thing we liked so much about lending is we were finding a new asset where we could get really good returns by just doing something differentiated. And we had been personally invested in crypto for a long time. We believed in it as an asset class. And it really sort of was right in, down the fairway in terms of a new asset class built on the back of technology. Um, and a lot of our investors were trying to figure out ways to get exposure to the asset class. And so we decided to just set up an index um, that could track the top 15 cryptocurrencies uh, based on their ma- market cap. So it's a market cap weighted index rebound, you know, that um, just sort of gives diversified exposure um, to that asset class. I see. So it's, it, it's kind of just an interesting thing to talk to investors about. Is there like, do you make a little spread on it? And uh, it's just, it's not really a blockchain thing. It's just a cryptocurrency investment bucket. So um, there's not a lot of regulation around what you're able to talk about with these businesses. So I'll kind of keep it general. Um, many, there's a number of crypto funds that are getting set up um, and they range in various styles. In one style, um, you have sort of relative value funds and these are actively traded funds run by managers who say, I believe that this cryptocurrency is going to be better than this cryptocurrency because of the technology, because of the community, because uh, the distributed nature of it, um, for one reason or another. And so they'll take a view and want to own that kind of cryptocurrency. And when you're taking a view, you should get paid in part by the profits uh, of those investments. Um, you know, the other strategies that people are taking are they're sort of applying traditional trading strategies to crypto, which they view as an inefficient asset class. Um, there's funds that focus on ICOs. That say, well, there's all these new ICOs, and because I've been in the space for a long time, I have unique access, and I can make investments in those. I think one of the things people um, uh, underestimate um, in sort of their venture capital to ICO fund analog is, in venture capital, the scarcity of available equity to purchase is far greater than the scarcity of ICO to- pre-ICO tokens. So I think that these funds that are targeting ICOs are basically going to get a lot of illiquidity, even though they're paying a huge premium. And the sort of uh, thesis around access probably won't hold up as much. But again, those types of funds should really be taking a percentage of the profits. And I'm guessing we'll probably have fees that are very similar to a 2 and 20 type structure. Um, an index traditionally um, you know, would be a business where you're not taking a view. And indexes usually just get priced as a management fee. Um, and again, that's just general, general stuff. Um, not us specifically, but it's a way to sort of um, have a framework in terms of how you think about the different uh, ways to invest in a fund. Okay, thanks. That's interesting. So let's get to the last question here, the advice piece. You know, you're 26, and not only do you work in venture, you own your fund. So a lot of people listening to this podcast are thinking, oh, I need to go do investment banking first, and then I can get into private equity, and then I can start a business, and then I can get into venture capital. What do you think about the idea of just doing exactly what you want right after school, making that happen for yourself? I think, first of all, you have to know what you want, and I think a lot of people don't. And so going into investment banking or consulting or private equity, in many cases, is a good idea because it preserves optionality. It'd be very hard to pick any career other than two-year investment banking or consulting that give you greater optionality in terms of what you do next. Um, You sort of have this stamp of approval where people say, well, you worked at Goldman Sachs. That seems like a difficult job to get. I'm going to use second principle thinking to assess the fact that you're probably a smart individual. or and, And if you're not, it means Goldman made a rare mistake. Um, and because of that, you'll usually get an interview at the next thing. And then further, you get a pretty good starting salary but relative to other individuals at that age. So you can save a little bit of money. And if you ever start a new business again, you have some sort of savings or a high credit card limit or something that will give you a little bit of runway to get the business off the ground. So I don't think that doing either of those things when you're not exactly sure what you want to do next 
um, is a bad choice. Uh, it just preserves optionality. Now, if you do know what you want to do, um, yeah, I guess you have to sort of make that decision and decide what your opportunity costs and what your risk tolerance is. Um, you know, so I, I know that for me, I, I felt pretty convinced and I, I had a lot of conviction that, you know, it was the right path for me, but I'm not sort of one of those people who says you definitely have to go into startups or you definitely have to go into consulting or banking. Um, I think usually your gut will kind of tell you what you should, what you should do and what you should feel most comfortable with. Okay. That's great. I love that analysis. I love the whole conversation. This was a lot of fun, Ali. Thanks so much for doing it. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. Help us out by checking out the courses on Wall Street Oasis and leaving us a review on iTunes. I certainly appreciate it.